years ago, um, I went to a pastor's conference with a, a dear uh, brother, a leader in our church, a young man. Well, we were both young then. Um, matter of fact, he and I drove up here together to a pastor's conference that met at Gilead those years ago in 1987. And uh, Steve Thompson and I, and we had a wonderful time together, fellowship, driving together, talking about the things of the Lord. But in this particular time, we were, in, we were in Dayton, and Steve was raised really without his birth father, without a dad in the home, and he had this big, gapping, emotional hole in his heart from not having his dad there. He's a very sweet guy and wonderful Christian leader and a dear friend and, a, and a, an outstanding dad and a grandpa now. But we talked a lot. He kind of opened his heart a little bit about that. When we got to the conference, one of the speakers came by way of video, and the speaker was Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley had gone up to the Northwoods, and they videotaped him in the Northwoods doing something that he rarely did, just telling his own personal testimony, his own story. He was telling a story about how difficult it was for him emotionally to be raised without a father. And as he began to tell the story, I could feel my friend Steve Thompson just listening with everything that was in him. And he said he wondered, you know, is there a God? And does this God love me? And will this God watch over me? This, this fatherless boy, will God watch over me? He was in college and he was out of money. And he was in Georgia and he's walking along the road at night. And he just said, oh God, if you're there, show me that you care for me. And the sky lit up. The sky just lit up. The moment he prayed that prayer, the sky lit up. I'll never forget Charles Stanley saying, I serve a God who will move heaven and earth to show himself to a fatherless boy. Dale, uh, that's what I was thinking about while you're singing tonight. Light, light, light up the sky. So, what a wonderful God we serve. Don't you love him? To thank God for him and for our Savior. And You ever seen this Life is Good stuff, line of clothing, Life is Good? See that? On my Jeep, I got this little patch. I bought used, and somebody had put a sticker on there that wasn't good, so we put a sticker over it. And the sticker I put over it was called, it says, Life is Good. These guys that came up with this company, I think they've made a lot of money on it. It's kind of cute. They have these little characters, Jake, and Life is Good. And I like it. It's optimistic. I like to think of myself as an optimist. What's interesting, though, is philosophically and theologically, it's really not true. Life without God is not good. It's a curse. It's cursed. Life without God is cursed. And we can whistle, but we're whistling in the dark. We're whistling in the graveyard. Outside of God, life is not good. And this is what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. Most of us believe him to be Solomon. And this is a unique piece of work. This book of the Bible is a wonderful, wonderful book of the Bible and a treasure to have in our laps uh, tonight. I hope you got a chance to read it. It's really Initially, it's kind of aimed at young people, like Proverbs. Let me just say this. We have, all kinds, we have young people in our home. It's like young people time in the Pierpont house. So we have these discussions, and sometimes they just go spiraling off into the night, you know, about all the young people stuff. And I was having a talk with one of my boys the other day, and, and we were just kind of like kind of arm wrestling about some things. I just said, you know what I think would be good is if we don't talk about this anymore, why don't you just take your Bible, take the book of Proverbs, read it, and do what it says. And he did. And he went along with the Lord, and he took the book of Proverbs, and he read it. And he goes, Dad, that was good advice. I'm just giving that to you, too. That's very, very, very much from my heart tonight. If you're a young person, 
one of the best things you could possibly do is take that book of Proverbs and just read it. It is so full of wisdom. And so is this book. It also is Proverbs. Uh, Ecclesiastes is clusters of Proverbs, if you will. And, it, and you can tell from chapter 11 and verse 9 that it's aimed at young people. And many a time I've taken my Bible in the end when up in the north speaking to young people at camps. And I've said these words, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. And walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these God will bring you into judgments. There is a God. Yeah, you'll answer to him. Verse 10, therefore remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. And remember your, now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. Remember your creator in the days of your youth by the law of end stress. We see the emphasis in this book on young people. But the book is, so it's written with young people in mind, but it's written by an old guy who used to be middle-aged. So it's good for all of us. The book is good for youth because a young person stands at the Y of the road, the crossroads in life. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with young people and I just wish I could get them to see what, I, what, I, what would be helpful to them. And I know if you're like I am and you have a few years behind you, you've had that experience many times. If I could just open this young person's heart and let, if they could just see that they are at a Y in the road, and one way leads to life and life and abundant life. And the other way is a hard, hard, sad way. <laughs> Are you with me on this? If you're, yeah, we, we know this, don't we? We've been around the horn a few times and we say, oh, in the youth, you should be wise. And here we have a sage, a wise, a wise man speaking, the preacher in Ecclesiastes speaking. A special word in Hebrew translated preacher. In, in Ecclesiastes, you'll, you'll see this in, in chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of the preacher, and he's identified as son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. It's the one who gathers the assembly, or, or perhaps when he gathers words of wisdom. Uh, verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. A bit of identity there. Notice in chapter 7 and verse 27, uh, here is what I found, says the preacher. And then again in chapter 12, in verse 8, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Everything's empty, all is vanity. In verse 9, or verse 10, the preacher sought to find acceptable words. I, I like this because what it's saying is this, this preacher, writer uh, of, of, of Ecclesiastes, tried to find poetic ways of expressing himself in order to impart this wisdom about life to the audience that he had gathered. So the book is good for youth, but the book is also useful for those of us in midlife. I don't look very young, but I'm in midlife. Um, I was like, here's the way it works. If I try to be funny, you laugh, okay? This is how it goes. If you can see I'm up here trying to be funny, your job is you laugh at that stuff, okay? It just helps me. Come on, work with me here. Uh, anyway, the, the, bo- the book is useful for those in midlife evaluation and course correction. And boy, do I feel the heaviness of that right now. I, I feel that very heavily, very, and not in a wonderful way, not in a bad way, but almost every morning I just feel like, God, what do you want me to do with the rest of my short life? What direction do you want me to try to lead this church? Show me what you want. There's so many ways we could go. What do you want? There's a midlife evaluation going on in my soul. And this is a great book for a midlife evaluation. 
you see the poetry of life and, and even the dissonance of life. And, 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 and it's just a, it's interesting. I think it was like six or seven years ago, our first kid went through courtship. We had anticipated that. We talked about it till we were blue in the face. We read about it. We didn't know anything. We thought we knew everything. So now our first kid's going through courtship. That's what we called it. He uh, sparked it with this girl, and uh, we liked her. She, we liked her a lot. And uh, so now we're going to meet at Cracker Barrel up north of Flint. We're going to meet at Cracker Barrel. Don't you love us? Everybody's listening now. They, uh, just throw a little love story in every message, and you got them listening for at least a little while. Amen. Uh, there we go. We meet at uh, we meet at Cracker Barrel. Uh, Bruce and Annette Winsler, and Elizabeth, and Kyle and Lewis and I, and we all sit down, kind of like, well, you know. Kyle was embarrassed by the whole fiasco, you know. And anyway, you know what's going on this evening? Bruce and Annette Winsler are meeting Lois with two little grand buddies at Cracker Barrel, north of Flint. <laughs> and they're bringing them here for a week. So I'm going to be all distracted this week. I put that on my Facebook. I said, in the same restaurant where we met six years ago to talk about maybe you getting together, we're going to meet the other grandparents, and swap our mutual grandchildren. And my son Kyle wrote, I knew you wouldn't miss the poetry of that. We have some really beautiful poetry in our laps tonight. Do not miss the poetry here. Do not miss the beauty of God-inspired, God-written poetry. It's beautiful. This should be a treasure to you. Maybe it's been a mystery in the past. It really shouldn't be. It really is very simple. So the book is useful for us midlife guys and girls. But I think it's also a good book for those who are in the autumn of life. So if you ever see anybody like that, tell them about it. Who need to frame the story of their lives and label what was empty and label what was meaningful so that they can help everybody who's coming behind them to avoid some of the things that caused them pain They steer them in the right direction. I think, I like to believe, I like to believe. This is what happened with Solomon, who got off course. I like to believe that he looks back and says, these are the mistakes I made. This is the way I should have gone. I don't know. It's a brief book, but it covers all of life and human experience. As I listed things, work, leisure, entertainment, time, Worship, nature, money, death, sleep, eating, drinking, sex, farming, commerce, education, government. A clear portrayal of an acquisitive and hedonistic life. It's all in there. Very contemporary for an ancient book. (laughs) It's interesting. It's meditative. In other words, it's not the kind of book you want to just speed through. Don't read it like that. It's the kind of book you just want to leisurely sip like a cup of tea. It's affective, affective. In other words, don't be too analytical with poetry. Don't analyze the life out of poetry. Experience poetry. Allow it to touch you emotionally. That's the way you should handle poetry. (laughs) I watched a little movie one time years ago where this this young uh, literature teacher was teaching in a, uh, a boys' prep school. 
in, in New England somewhere. All the students had their regimental striped ties and their navy blazers, and they were sitting in straight rows. And he stood before them, and he said, I want you to get out your poetry anthology, and I want you to open to the first page, and I want one of you to read the introduction. And one of the boys begins to read the introduction. And he reads this really terrible, stale, analytical introduction where the guy tries to quantify how you measure poetry. And then he, he inter- and, and he starts to draw this chart on the board, and all the students are drawing the chart, you know, dutifully into their notes like this. And then he says, I want you to take this passage and rip it out of your book. Rip it out! They're what? He said, rip it out, right now, rip it out. And finally, he talks his students into, they just begin to, to rip the whole section out of the, out of the book. And he says, we're not laying pipe here. This is poetry. He says, I want you to understand that words can make a huge difference in life. They're like life and death. He says, rip it out. This is not the Bible. Well, this is the Bible. And it's poetry. And it's not laying pipe. And you can't put it on a graph. Let God access your heart through this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful poetry that says such true things about how people without God see life, and it says such true things about the way life is with God, life is really not good without God. Now I want to give you a simple outline, because I'm incapable of a complex one. I'm just kidding. I could have, but we'd be here so long, I would lose your attention. The key question in the book is, what should I do when life doesn't satisfy. And haven't we all had that experience, thinking if I accomplish this or if I have this, I'll be, I'll be satisfied, and then you accomplish it or you had it. And, and it really wasn't that satisfactory. I recently saw, I stumbled across a blog of a couple who um, realized that just buying things never made them happy. So they decided they were going to simplify their lives. They got rid of their car. They moved close to public transportation. They decided that they were each going to live with 100 personal items. It may seem like a lot, but that's not many. Only 100 personal items, not including a television. They were going to live with 100. And, and the idea on the blog, they, they were unbelievers. They were saying, now, now with this simplicity, we're going to be happy. Well, you know, I don't want to pick on them. That's what we're all in that kind of a desire to be happy. So they're, they're thinking, I know why we're not happy because... We're trying to acquire too many things, and we can never acquire enough things, so we'll simplify our lives, and that will make us happy. And the answer to that is, no, not without God. It won't make you happy. No. Simplicity, complexity, poverty, wealth, nothing will make you happy without God. Nothing will fulfill you. It's all vanity under the sun. And this is really important. When you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not just the first part is all kind of mysterious enigma, and then it has this strong conclusion it, 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 um, it kind of ebbs and flows, a kind of a kaleidoscope. Parts of it are going to say, this is what it's like when you try to live life without God. And then you're going to have little positive parts, but this is what it's like when you live according to life's instruction booklet or you live under, under the Lord, under, under heaven, with the Lord. There's a phrase under the sun that occurs 30 times in the 12 chapters. It would be a key phrase, obviously. And there's a phrase, vapor or breath, that occurs 31 times. Again, the idea is the emptiness of life without God. You have to be very careful with Ecclesiastes that you just don't cherry-pick something you like and then 
put those words in God's mouth as true because the speaker, the preacher, might be speaking under the sun. He's saying this is what life is like without God. So you want to be careful about that you understand that's important, that you understand when you're reading Ecclesiastes or trying to understand it, that w- which part are we talking? Who's speaking now? Is, this, is the preacher speaking under the sun? Or is he speaking above the sun, if you will, from the perspective of a person who recognizes God. And it's written in, in the form of Proverbs that are in clusters, so it is poetic and it's unique in that not only is it poetic and has these you know, Hebrew parallel, parallelisms and Hebrew kinds of poetry, but it also tells a story of a, of a king who was seeking fulfillment and purpose. And so it has some elements of plot and story there in it. Uh, I'll get to my simple outline in a moment. Here's one that, and this, I don't know if you can track with this because I'll just verbally tell you that the major emphasis, again, is an emptiness of life without God. And within the chapters are smaller sections that point to the same answer, the way of a meaningful life. So it kind of comes and goes here. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, life is a vapor. It's negative. Another negative section, again, chapter 1, verse 4 through chapter 2 and verse 23, it's life under the sun. And it emphasizes the emptiness of pleasure and wealth without God. Then in chapter 2, you have a brief section, verses 24 through 26. It's life above the sun. It's positive. By the way, here's a little trick I'll give you on this. It helps me. I don't know if it'll help you. Take your book, uh, take your Bible, and get a highlighter. And maybe take like a, let's say you take a blue highlighter. And highlight the positive parts, the above the sun parts. And leave the under the sun parts not highlighted so that you kind of recognize the speaker, if you will. It helped me. In a minute, I'll give you a little trick or a little secret or a little help to discover who, who's speaking so you're not confused. Chapter 3, beautiful, beautiful chapter 3. Two views of time, human and divine. Hey, let's, just, let's, just, let's just dip into chapter 3 just a bit. Let's let, let's let chapter 3 touch our hearts. To everything there is a season. Time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to dance. A time to cast away stones. A time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. Verse 11, he has put eternity in their hearts. Verse 13, every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It's the gift of God. Verse 17, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there's a time there for every purpose and every work. Everyone would agree there's a time for this, there's a time for that, there's a time for this, there's a time. Oh, don't forget, there will be a time of judgment. Beautiful, thought-provoking affective poetry. Very true in chapter 11. I'll give you an example. Chapter 11, 
is, 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 is a cluster of Proverbs encouraging a person to work. This is a theme, a good theme in Ecclesiastes, that it's a good thing uh, to give yourself to labor, to work. Um, so hear this. Uh, you, you ever feel like, what's the point of me going to work? What am I accomplishing? Why well, teach that Sunday school class? It's the same old, same old. Why do it? Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. Over and over again, you're going to see this little phrase, you do not know, in the poetry here. What he's going to say is, keep plugging away, keep investing, keep sowing, keep doing what you know is right, keep working. There's a law going on here. But if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child. So you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed. In the evening do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. That's beautiful. Stay with it. Keep sowing. You don't know. You just don't know. So, chapter 3 there is two views of time, human and divine. Chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 17 is life under the sun. Again, and it kind of highlights oppression and sadness. You see, you ever see something happen that just like, torques on your heart, just breaks your heart, and you think, God, why? That happened this week. I just came home, just walked in the house, kids, I think Wes said, Dad, did you see what happened at eight? No, what, what happened? He said, out in Texas, there's a Christian ball player, caught a foul ball, and he threw up in the stands to a guy, there's a guy up there, a young dad, and this little precious little boy with him, a dad and this boy at the ball game. The big kid had the hat on, it was way too big for him, had a glove on, way too big for him. And the dad reaches out to catch the ball, and he tumbles over the rail. He falls down, and he's hurt. They send for an ambulance, it looks serious. He says, somebody help me, my little boy's still up there. Last words he said to him, he died on the way to the hospital. And I just wept, I thought, what? God. Sad. Life is just sad sometimes. It's just tragic. If there's no perspective, if there's no God, how do we make sense of this mess of a world, this curse on the world? And this is what chapter 4, 1 through 5, 17, the oppression, the sadness that you see. But then there's a little positive section in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. And then again, a negative when, when, when disappointments come. Chapter 6, 1 through chapter 9, verse 6. Then chapter 7, there's a little positive from chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, about living life with zest, recognizing it's a gift from God. In chapter 9, verse 11 through chapter 10, and verse 20, it's life under the sun again, human folly, foolishness of people. And then chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, God at the center, again, a positive section. And then the conclusion, as you, you're probably aware of and familiar with, in chapter 12 and verses 9 through 14. Essentially, you can tell which perspective the author is taking. If he says, under the sun, he's speaking from the godless point of view. 
if he refers to God in a positive way as a, general, as a generality, as he refers to God, he's talking about above the sun or person with God in perspective. Here's a simple outline. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, an introduction and a major theme, the emptiness, the vanity. Chapter 1, verse 4 through chapter 2, verse 23, the futility of life without God. And this is a really interesting passage. When you read it, it's like, it's, it's a little bit like, did you ever have somebody say to you, can I tell you about a business opportunity? How would you like to have the nicest car? What, tell me about the car you always dreamed about. Tell me about the house you always dreamed about. If money were no object, where would you travel and what would you, you ever have anybody do this to you? And they're kind of like stirring up uh, greed and love for money. And, uh, and then they say, and if you do this business thing, you can get all that stuff. And they often appeal to Christians this way. It's a bald appeal to a very sinful thing. It really is. If a person desires, uh, has a love for money, he, read First Timothy about that. Very scary. Very scary. Don't do, don't do that. But there, uh, the futility of life with God, uh, God. You see in this section, he says, let's have parties. Let's have singers. Let's have um, food, let's have uh, attendance waiting on us and all these things. It's like uh, chapter 2, when you read all through there, all the things that he had, I'm enjoying pleasure and laughter and mirth and wine and all of that, and, and houses and vineyards and gardens and orchards and fruit trees and water pools and groves and servants, male and female, and flocks and, uh, and even uh, dominance, like no one was ever as wealthy as I. And I became great, verse 9, and excelled more and more than all who were before me in Jerusalem and in all wisdom and all of that. But he says in his heart, this is all emptiness. It's grasping for the wind. It's vanity, he says. See, I've... Uh, here you have really meditations on the futility of life without God. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, through chapter, the end of chapter 3, you have meditations on the fulfillment of life with God. And then in chapter 4, verse 1 through 12, there you have the alternating sections that are positive and negative. And then you have the conclusion, which is the speaker's, if, you, if I can use this phrase, the speaker gives his big idea at the end. Let me show you in this book 10 things that, that don't satisfy without God. One, knowledge does not satisfy without God. You can be smart and have degrees and all that, but without God, it won't satisfy you. Pleasure does not satisfy without God. We just referred to that, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. No matter what you know, it doesn't matter what you have done or experienced, or pleasure without God, it will not ultimately satisfy you. Even a big house, chapter 2 and verse 4, and aren't there a lot of people who just, I, in my neighborhood, there's a guy. I'm going to say too much here because I'd like for him to be here one day with us. Sweet young dad. I remember walking along one night, and it just it looked like he was new, so I stopped and said hi to him. And he, he has a real nice, well-kept house there, takes good care of it there in the neighborhood. And he's real proud of it. You can just tell that. He's a young guy. I said, he has a little critter, little Sweet little boy running around the front yard, little kids. He, he's Moses' lawn. His little kid has a little plastic mower. He goes around mowing. I like watching him. I talked to him one time. His name's Dave. And uh, I go, you have a beautiful place here. He goes, oh, I worked hard to get where I'm at. I was like, oh. Yeah. Well, it's a nice house, but 
you know, you can't get a house big enough or nice enough to substitute for God. You just can't. No substitute for God. You know, um, it's, it's more a career in work. Some people just bury themselves in that career, that, is, that work. And without God, though, chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, you won't be satisfied. Keep ahead of the neighbors. <laughs> Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, again, uh, chapter 4 and verse 4. I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. Yeah, but this is vanity and grasping after wind. You know, there are neighborhoods that are infinitely nicer than yours. When I was a kid, I going home from school, I used to get beat up. I told you that. Um, and I used to think, if I was a little, you know, it's good for your philosophical bent. I'm doing philosophy in my mind. Maybe I should work out taekwondo, you know, and then I could fight back. But then I, I thought, philosophically, I thought, no, there's always going to be some thug who's bigger and meaner and uglier and nastier than I am, no matter how much I work out, which I think is true. Yeah? And if not, we have a gun or something, or a bigger gun, so... Keeping ahead of the neighbors is not going to make you happy without God. Uh, Popularity, power, fame aren't going to make you happy without God. Money won't make you happy without God. Here's one that takes some thinking. I think we've all, not all of us certainly, but many of us have seen and, and even experienced the incredible, incredible happiness of having a family. But without God... There's an emptiness in that, too. Even a long life without God. Look at chapter 6 and verse 6. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but he's not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. He dies. And food and drink. Hey, let's not kid ourselves. This is a big deal. A lot of people... Like, Drive through our community on a Friday night, a Saturday night. You got people working and working and working. They got a little free time. They got a little something to eat, a little something to drink. And, and of course, eating and you know, drinking is this legitimate thing to do. When you recognize that your food and drink are from the Lord, and you thank him for those things. But if you live for that, and your God is your belly, you, you'll never be satisfied. So what's the central truth? Without God, no matter what you have or do or become, your life will be empty. Only God, only with God will your life be meaningful and fulfilling. That's all. That's all. So uh, look in chapter 12, verse 6. Remember your creator, therefore, before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken. Chapter 11, verse 6, 12, verse 6. Or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people with knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written and was upright. Words of truth, the words of the wise are like goads. The words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books. There is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. 
Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is man's all. God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. Somebody said it like this. Maybe it's kind of trite, but memorable. Life under the sun will be futile. But with a perspective of the New Testament and our understanding of Jesus, who is the personification of all wisdom, life in the sun will be fulfilling. These things all point to Christ as the greatest fulfillment. Augustine, you've heard his story. He was raised by a devout mother, Monica, but he went his own way, got involved in lewdness and acquisition, and he wanted to be a great orator, and he got involved in vile sexual behavior. But his mother and his God pursued him, and God won his heart, and he wrote his autobiography in the form of a prayer, a prayer of confession. It's a wonderful read. And he said something like this, We are made for you, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. And that's what the preacher says.